Okay, well, listen, let's get going here for today. Now, any more reports on the uh, level three experiment? Joe, everything okay? Okay. Now, how about Bill? Oh, I'm still living. I'm happy. Okay, still okay, huh? All right. Billy's missing. Billy's missing. This is the thing. What's that? I heard him discussing it last night with his wife. So really? Yes. Ah. From the other okay. side of campus. From the other side of campus. That's good. Hey, something came up in chapel yesterday in the sermon by Dave Lewis. I forgot to mention it yesterday um, when he was talking about the you know so-called doubting Thomas thing. And he said, this is literally what he said, that Jesus said to Thomas, be not unbelieving, unfaithless, unfaithless, but be believing, be faithful. Now, what on earth does unfaithless mean? I mean, it would almost seem like it means faithful because you're not faithless. Here's my point. The meaning of unfaithless has got to mean faithless or unfaithful. Okay? And you know that only from the entire context. So in other words, what you don't do is get the meanings of each individual word and add them up the meaning of that signifier, unfaithless, is determined by the meaning of the larger context. That is a really good example of how it, it's not just from parts to the whole, but the whole uh, determines what's going on with the parts also. I'm going to keep that. that was, it was so striking. It's interesting that you guys noticed that too. It, it's just an odd, odd misspeaking. Uh, okay. It's like irregardless. Yes, it's like irregardless. Or, do you know, it's another one like that, actually, that's just as common, is somebody saying, I could care less. Well, if you could care less, then, you know, then you must care some. But you mean, I couldn't care less. Now, when I was growing up, people said, I couldn't care less. All of a sudden, some point in the 70s or something like this, this was before JB was even a twinkle in his father's eye, uh, the uh, uh, it, it's people started saying if I could I could care less I don't know what happened but you know what it means from the context it can't mean I actually care a fair amount <clears throat> all right now as we move on to chapter seven uh, some really great questions again I would like you uh, all to make sure if you'll go in your books to uh, Now, we're not going to uh, do this for today, but I, just as long as we have Addendum 7A to Chapter 7, so that's page 176, one of the things that was required for this course is this uh, document, Biblical Revelation and Inclusive Language, which is a report of the Commission of Theology and Church Relations of the LCMS in 1998. Now, this document... Uh, was done by Committee 2 of the CTCR, and I, I was chairman of the committee when this was produced. All right, now, this is, this is a document that is 
really complete and in-depth. That is to say, it deals with this whole issue of language and God and so on on the basis of Hebrew and Greek, not just kind of general discussions of things. So there's, as far as I'm concerned, this is about as good a discussion anywhere of actual Hebrew and Greek usage of this kind of issue. But make sure that on page 176 that you include this as a, um, as a resource. This was not out when this edition of the book was produced. And uh, this is going to be very critical for the debate that will be coming up on Monday. This particular uh, document, by the way, from 1998, uh, is really worthwhile taking a look at. I would admonish all of you, especially those of you who in the debate will be taking the negative side to the question, given our um, context, it is in certain circumstances um, appropriate to address God as our mother, those, those who will be against that, make sure you take a look at the footnotes and follow up some of the sources in there. Okay, so I just wanted to make sure you had that more or less uh, on your bibliography here. Now, as far as uh, that whole debate and everything is going to be riding on the more general issue of non-literal language. Now, let me talk, first of all, about the positioning of this chapter in the book. When I was doing the book, I had to make a decision as to when I, when I would handle this non-literal language. And maybe more specifically, it would be better for me to say, I had to make a decision where I would put the material from chapter 6 on levels. Because chapter 7 returns to level 1. Chapter 8, about filling in blanks and things, is on level 1. So the question was, are you going to drive level 1 to the ultimate before you talk about level 2 stuff? Or are you going to do the basics, then talk about levels of signifiers, and then, then so to speak, backfill with the next 7, 8, and 9? And I chose to do it that way. So you might say, in pro strict progression terms. A chapter like this really follows a five rather than six. Although, Ozzy, I appreciated very much your comment on uh, using non-literal language in kind of a level three evaluation. So, I mean, it's, it's useful in that way. But, you know, strictly speaking, we're talking about level one. All right, now, there are a couple of major things here that we want to make sure that we are on about. And I want to tell you a little bit more about the composition of how I, you know, how I compose this chapter. Now, maybe it struck some of you that I kept using the term non-literal rather than figurative. 
I chose not to use figurative because I thought that its connotation, not denotation, but its connotation was more kind of literary and flowery. As if you're just kind of creating an impression or you'd only use figurative language in poetry or something like that. I didn't want anybody to go in that direction. I wanted people to be thinking, no, no, non-literal language is used in the most plain speech on an everyday basis. So non-literal and figurative can be seen as the same, but I thought the connotations were different. All right, and secondly, in the way I'm presenting this, the difference between literal and non-literal is simply to what extent are the conceptual signifieds, the, the characteristics of the conceptual signifieds, corresponding to the characteristics of the referent. If only some of the uh, characteristics of the conceptual signified evoke correspond to some of the referent, then I think you have non-literal language. If they all correspond, then you have literal language. Thus, for example, if you, somebody has, let's say, a 98 Buick or something out there, and you label it automobile, that would be literal because all of the characteristics of that object, that referent, correspond to the characteristics of the conceptual signified evoked by automobile. But if I call, come up and say, hey, nice chariot, I call it a chariot, now all of a sudden some of the characteristics are not congruent. Like, it's not pulled by horses. It's not two-wheeled. Now, it does, of course, take you someplace, you ride in it, and a whole bunch of things like that. So, um, so it's not as if you're really doing that much different. It's just that some of the characteristics are not corresponding. It's not that you're really doing all that much different. I think that another thing that's important about this is that it doesn't suddenly launch into a different world or something. That's why I don't like the word figurative. You haven't suddenly become expansive and poetic or you're being highfalutin and literary. None of that's true. So if I say, remember the example from the book, for synecdoche of whole for the part, there's weather coming. Okay, and you say, ooh, there's weather coming. There isn't a farmer in Kansas who'd say, don't talk figurative talk to me. Speak literally. You know, no, it's, it's actually pretty normal talk. So you, you have to get away from the notion that there's something you know, you're doing something really different if you're being non-literal. Actually, I think it's only a matter of how many of the characteristics line up between the referent 
and the conceptual signified. Now, there are three main kinds which I talked about. You have metaphor, metonymy, and synecdoche. The fourth main kind of non-literal language is irony. And the reason that I don't include irony in this is that irony is not essentially one of the ways in which language expands. And this is a, this is a point in the chapter that I developed somewhat, but I want to just develop this a little bit more. I think non-literal language is the way in which the meanings of nouns or verbs, let's say, expand. <clears throat> now, I saw this happen personally in basketball. I was watching a game in the 70s, and Al McGuire, who was a pretty famous coach, you recognize that name, Al McGuire was the coach of the Marquette Warriors. And they had won the championship of the NCAA in the early 70s. And about the middle of the 70s, he had become a TV commentator. Well, I was watching a game that he was commenting one day and, you know, like reading something or, you know, just kind of monitoring it. And all of a sudden, and it's the first time I'd ever heard this, all of a sudden Al McGuire delivers himself of the following comment. Boy, look at those big guys battling it out down in the paint. I looked at the thing, and I looked, and I saw that the free throw area is painted, right? So this is painted. And he is characterizing an area by one of its characteristics. I think you'd probably call that synecdoche. Well, I didn't hear it for a while. You would say that, and I think uh, in New York you'd use a phrase like this, that would have been a synecdochal usage, right? All the time. So he used a synecdoche. Well, then, over the years, everybody started calling that the paint, like this. we got to have more scoring in the paint, or we're not going to win because you can't live on outside shooting. That kind of statement, right? Well, at first, first time I heard this, this would have been what you would call a usage. Like if all of a sudden I'd say, some guys get getting banged around down there and rebounds, but he's not being effective. You say, wow, that guy's an armadillo in there or something. You know, it's, it's a usage. <laughs> but all of a sudden, when this usage becomes standardized, there's a new meaning that's attached to the word. Now, one of the meanings of the word paint is free throw area between the sidelines and below the free throw line. Lest you think this is not right, 
that it, it has actually become a separate meaning. About seven years ago, I was watching an NCAA March Madness basketball game in which Utah was playing somebody. And they were playing out west in Utah. The commentator said, Utah's doing pretty well today because they're scoring in the paint. You know what? The Utah floor was completely natural wood. Wasn't painted at all. The whole floor is kind of retro. The whole floor was regular polished and varnished wood. But that area now is designated as the paint, though it has none of those characteristics. The language had expanded at this point. Now, at this point, the paint is another, another meaning of paint is free throw three second area. So, uh, so I think you have to recognize that language expands by non-literal usage becoming standardized and then it becomes a standard meaning. And what I think is interesting about that is I don't know how I would answer the following question. Is pain meaning free throw area, a literal meaning or not? You know, you'd probably say no, but when the meaning becomes standardized, I, I don't know, that's a very interesting question at that point. It's much easier to talk about non-literal usages than it is to talk about non-literal meanings. I guess you probably legally have to say it's a non-literal meaning, but, at, uh, but take this, take this. This is a very interesting one. Take the word bank with reference to financial institutions. Okay? Now we can say this. The bank doesn't have enough assets to survive. In that sentence, bank means the financial institution, right? How about this sentence? If you want to get over to the Cheshire, go up and turn left at the bank. There, bank means the building housing the financial institution. Okay? Would you think that bank meaning building housing the institution is metonymy? and a non-literal slash figurative usage of the word bank, I don't think almost anybody would think that. They'd think that that's another literal usage. It can mean the financial institution, or it can mean the building housing, the financial institution. But strictly speaking, I think the fin its financial institution would be literal, and then the place housing it would actually be a metonymy. That is, the thing associated, like when you say, the White House said they didn't agree with that newspaper article. It's not the House, it's the people in the White House. Okay, yeah. So if you turn it into a snowbank, it would be the same thing? 
the place where it's at or the thing itself? Well, you know, now if you have bank, bank meaning slanty area that borders a river, okay? I think that's another literal meaning of bank. I'm making this all up now, okay? I mean, I'd, I'd have to actually look this up. I don't think they're related etymologically. So it would be this slanty part. Now, a snow bank resembles it. So therefore, that would be a metaphoric usage because a snow bank looks like the bank of a river. Uh, but, see, so, I don't know, is a snowbank, is, is that non-literal usage? See, it, that sounds weird when you talk about it that way. My point, actually, in all of this, and spending this kind of time on it, is to say, just recognize what's going on here. So, not all characteristics correspond. <clears throat> You know, I, I'm just not sure there's a whole lot in this determining whether it's literal or non-literal. Like, say, supposing we decide snowbank is non-literal. And, see, what have you decided at that point? Now, the fact is, it's not, like, hyper-literary. Notice how I keep avoiding figurative. See? And then this is another really critical point that comes up only at the end of the chapter. When you use language non-literally, it does not mean that your referent is untrue. That's really important. And the chief example here, before I take your question, the chief example here is calling the church the body of Christ. When we call the church the body of Christ, guys, it is non-literal. The literal body of Christ hung on the cross and has five wounds. The church as the body of Christ is not that. It's still real. Thus, in Acts chapter 9, what does Jesus say to Saul when he falls to the earth after the great light shines upon him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he hadn't touched the literal body. He had touched the metaphoric body. But that is a persecution of Jesus. Because the spirit dwelling in us makes us the body of Christ. So just because we say that we are the body of Christ and that's non-literal speech doesn't mean it's not real. It just means it's not literal. And a lot of people have a big deal with this. And you'll hear essays. You, you know, you're, you're going to go out to some conference, and the guy will be delivering an essay, and he'll deliver himself of this opinion. You know, say, now, the, the term body of Christ is no mere metaphor. Well, metaphors aren't mere, and it doesn't make any difference if it is a metaphor. See? So he's going to try to be making the point there's reality to it. It's got nothing to do with whether it's a metaphor or not that it's reality. So it's just how these things are corresponding. And then you have this issue 
how many things correspond, how do you know which kind of a metaphor it is. So um, uh, remember I did that in the chapter about you are the seed of Abraham. You know, what are you talking about here? Is, uh, which, which aspect of seed is? Is that, is that a, a synecdoche? Is it a metaphor? Okay, JB. Okay, would you uh, explain all this stuff in light of your uh, signifies don't have any innate meaning? What I'm saying is like, because yeah. it sounds like we're getting to that point where it, it, you can kind of say, well, the innate meaning of in the paint is uh, Johnny runs into his mom and says, hey. Yeah, Billy's in the paint. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's not, no, that's not innate meaning. That is the literal meaning at that time. I'm not relating it in any way to an original meaning or a supposed real meaning. It is, it is simply literal. That's that is the object we label with the signifier P-A-I-N-T in order to convey all of the characteristics of that referent, and we are intending to evoke them with that signifier in the conceptual signifier. I love talking like that. Anyway, uh, yeah, say it like, like so you can understand. Okay. So... You intend, when you use the word Johnny, Johnny, Billy's in the paint. The word paint is intended to invoke in your mom's mind conceptual signified with a bunch of characteristics. Liquid, color, tacky, can be used to cover objects of a different color, all that. That is literally true of the stuff that is in the can that Billy is in. Billy's playing basketball. All right, now if he's playing basketball and you say he's in the paint, you've used it non-literally. No problem. But he's literally in the paint. What? He's, he's, he's standing like in that zone. I don't understand. Well, um, like I'm saying like the innate meaning of the paint in this, this now, stop using the word innate. Okay, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to use it. The literal? literal meaning of that, using that signifier, is he is in that position on the court. But he's not in paint. No, he's in the paint. No, right, but it, you know, he's, not, he, he is, he's not kind of lifting up his foot and there's blue on it. It is an area that has as one of its features its color. You're worried about the area. You are not saying he is in blue pigment, because he's not. He's, in fact, on it. See, when you say in the paint, we're talking about being in an area. You don't say he's on painted surface. That would be literal. Okay, so in a dictionary, you would have option one, you know, sticky, tacky, colored, whatever. Option two, uh, an area of the... Basketball court, three-second area. Yeah. Both definitions of the word paint and in general what a dictionary would do is the first one would be literal and the second would be non-literal okay right but there's nothing innate about anything see if if we want to switch from the word paint to the word boozam or something like that we can do that if boozam now means this sticky stuff and everything now that's what we use there's no inherent thing about paint that it's to evoke that. Right. Okay. Uh, was there another? Nider, do you have your hand up? No. Okay, yeah. So, 
What about when we go with brand name products? The thing that you use to blow your nose into is technically a tissue. But it's Kleenex. If I say hand me a Kleenex, it doesn't matter right. what brand it is. What did that? What that would be that would be a synecdoche part for the whole, right? Because you could say a Kleenex or a downy or you know whatever some other thing would be. Okay, now. Um, I want to spend a little time on loose usage, but I want to bypass that for right now and talk about these problems, uh, such as identifying which kind it is, um, uh, which kind of uh, uh, non-literal usage it is. But let's focus right now on this issue. How do you know? Which complex of characteristics is supposed to correspond? To me, this is the huge question, not what kind of non-literal it is, but how do you know which ones correspond? Like, you know, as an example, if I say my wife is a rose, and you think beauty, maybe even smell. How about prickly? You know, kind of like she's really nice, but don't cross her. I mean, do you put that in there? Is that supposed to come across? Well, that's where you're arguing about which characteristics actually transfer. Now, the, in my view, the signal example of this for the Bible is you are the salt of the earth. All right? What characteristics of salt are you focusing on? It's not literal, J.B., Okay, so are you talking about the fact that it seasons? Are you talking about the fact that it preserves? That it has value? That it was actually used as a form of money in places in the ancient world? How about this? Salt was also used because it had destructive properties. And... If you'd sow salt in a field of an enemy, it would render it infertile. All right? Now, you've got a whole bunch of things here of characteristics of salt. You are the salt of the earth. Which characteristics is Jesus focusing upon? You can hear myriad sermons on that. Christians bring zest to an otherwise dying world or something like that. Or how about something like you are the salt of the earth. You are preserving the earth so God doesn't just destroy it straight out for its wickedness. Or of all the things in the earth, you are the thing that's the most valuable. Or, Jesus says, I have not come to bring peace but a sword. You are the salt of the earth. You are actually going to bring division. Hey, you got four years worth of sermons here. But it seems to me that you have, you have here a real issue in knowing which and how many of the characteristics are actually supposed to transfer here. Okay? Dan? Yeah. Uh, but wouldn't you want to widen your context a bit more and take in the full, me the full passage there? 
uh, salt has lost its flavor or saltiness, not flavor. If it's lost its saltiness, with where, wherewith will it be salted? Okay. Now, how has that gotten you any place? Well, it's taken away some of the meaning from uh, being cast upon the earth. No, because if it no longer functions as salt, how are you going to make it salt again? Well, no, I was, I was saying because, because it is no longer good for salt, it is being cast upon the ground because it is worth nothing. So being drawn, hmm, I don't know. <laughs> Never mind, I thought well, I had something to be there, but Well, to be cast out and trampled underfoot. That's what it says, to be trampled underfoot. Now, you might be able to argue, and I mean, I really do think this is a stretch anyway, the notion of sowing salt in, in the field to destroy it. All right, so you might be able to take that one out because it's cast out and people trample over it. Although, you know, not necessarily. But I don't know that the other three meanings would be, would be particularly canceled out by that. Okay? I was saying what he was saying about the saltiness. I was wondering what it said. It was yeah, yeah. Totally unclear. It's all, all with the, the house um, uh, root. Yeah. Maybe at least the light's a positive thing. The other things in conjunction, salt of the earth, light of the, light, doesn't he call them lights and salt? Yeah, you are the light of the world. Right, right. I, you know, I think it's unlikely, this thing about sowing salt in the enemy's field. I, I think that's unlikely. But the other three are still, you know, all kind of in play like that. Right, right. And Jesus tends to do this, that is to say, to kind of leave the stuff ambiguous enough. Right, right. Okay. Now, if you go to page 172, this is the business about synecdoche. And I'm using this difficult example of didasco in 1 Timothy 2.12. And you'll notice that I quote part of that passage here where it says, Didaskain de gynaike uk epitrepo, I do not permit to a woman to teach or to, now authenteo is a problem here, have authority, exercise authority, some people, I think, falsely think it's usurp authority uh, over a man, but to be in quietness. Now, didasco, what does that mean? Look what I say here. Virtually no one takes it literally that Paul is here prohibiting women from doing any teaching of any kind. So it's probably part for the whole. Something like, you could say, teaching of religious things. Or, you could say, teaching is synecdoche, part for the whole, for the whole pastoral office. Well, like, but what is it? See, there's nothing obvious here. And there are some people who might take it literally, completely, that in no way would it be permissible for a woman to teach at all. The issue here is not the meaning of the word didasco. It is 
to in what way or to what extent did Dasko is actually whole for the part. It's too big. You're going to narrow it in some way, and in what way should you narrow it? Now, let me just show you how complicated this gets. Notice in the Greek there. Or to have authority. Now, is that saying the ude there and not? Is that saying the same thing with the authentine? So that didasco, you could kind of do it like this. I do not permit a woman to teach. That is to say to have authority. Or are they two different things? Not to teach, not to have authority. Watch this. What's the meaning of Andrus there? Does Andrus mean a man? Or does Andrus mean a husband? So that that passage is really talking about husband and wife relationships, not between any woman and any guy anyplace. Now, you'll notice how the whole context starts to, to uh, make this even a bigger problem because if the didasco is the same as authentel, it's kind of explanatory, if it's different than it, and by the way, the use of ude and mede in the Pauline epistles tends to assume that it is something different. Uh, then you have something else again. So, um, and then, of course, if Andrus means a husband, then maybe didasco isn't synecdoche at all. Maybe it's any kind of teaching. And then it doesn't apply to a whole bunch of other situations. So you've actually got this kind of issue. And again, this is exactly why when you have arguments about things like the role of women, women in the ministry, the function of women in the church, the relationship between men and women in marriage, you're going to get people working on this passage, and all of a sudden you've got ten studies, and they're all concluding different things. It's because all these balls are in the air simultaneously. You know, in your reaction papers, a bunch of you write on your reaction paper on kind of a regular basis. Oh, my gosh, this is getting so darn complicated. You know, um, how the heck can we do anything? Just remember this. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. Why do you think we can never agree on these passages? I'm not making this more complicated than it is. I'm showing you how complicated it actually is, which is exactly why the arguments continue. All right. I want to make sure in this period that we get to the meaning of the word is in the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. And whether or not is means is in a literal sense or is means represents or some non-literal thing. Now this is a huge issue. There are some in our Lutheran circles who want to contend that is always means is and is always 
literal. Luther tended in this direction. I think that's an incorrect position. I think there are times when is means represents as in this example. If you ask me, how do you get to the Esquire Theater here on Clayton Road? I might say something like this. Look, this is Seminary Place, and this is Clayton Road, and the Esquire is over here. Now, you know what? This isn't Clayton Road. This is, ah! Truck just ran over my hand here on Clayton. No, see, you know, this, this is not Clayton Road. This represents Clayton Road. Now, I guess you can say, no, it does mean is, and what you're really doing is saying this really is a representation of Clayton Road. However, I don't think anybody in the Lord's Supper wants to say this truly is a representation of my body. You haven't gotten yourself anywhere with that. Now, the fact of the matter is... um, and, and by the way, I think the parables where Jesus says, these are the people who, when he's talking about the seeds and so on like that, it's a representation. This represents. Now, here's what I think the issue is. The issue, quite simply, ha- and the only reason it is an issue, is because Jesus Christ, our Lord, is the Son of God. If he weren't the Son of God, there'd be no argument about this. Everybody would understand that is, in some way, means represents here. Let me illustrate this. Let me have that cup right there. Imagine this scenario. Mohammed the Muslim prophet, is with his warriors and they are fighting the infidels. And there's going to be a battle the next day. He gathers with them around the fire and says, men, this is going to be hard. We're going to be taking casualties. Hopefully, we will, with Allah's help, be victorious. But if I die, and now he takes a cup of wine and says, this is the blood, my blood, which I shed for the cause. Is there any person around that campfire who thinks that's actually his blood? No! This represents the blood that he sacrifices for the cause. Or it is truly a representation of the blood that I am going to shed for the cause. So in other words, if it weren't for the fact that Jesus is God incarnate, there'd be no issue with this. Everybody would figure that 
It's a representation. Now, we do, however, have passages such as 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, in which we have these kinds of statements. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the koinonia, the sharing of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the koinonia sharing in the body of Christ? And there is talk about participation in his body and so on. So, there seems to be what I would call a great realism in the speech of St. Paul in 1 Corinthians. And he gives us every impression that the cup is, which we bless, it is a sharing in the blood of Christ. So for my own money, I would say that this passage from 1 Corinthians is actually your touchstone for this issue. Not going around telling people that is actually means is. Now we take that and we know that our Lord is truly God incarnate. Now when we go to Matthew 26 and we have statements such as this is my body, this is my blood. Now we view those differently. See, They have, if I may use this kind of phraseology, there's sort of the divine super additum there that allows you to even think it. If our Lord were not the Son of God or God incarnate, nobody would even think it. So in other words, to, to put this in one sentence, if it were said by anybody else, nobody would take it as real. Realistic, realistic, as non, non-literal speech. I shouldn't say real. Nobody would take it as literal speech. Everybody would take it non-literally. Okay, any questions on this? Uh, somebody had his, uh, suing, I think you had your hand up back there. Um, oh, wait, my question was, you used the, used the example of, you know, this is Clayton Road. Mm-hmm. And you were saying, well, this is a representation of Clayton Road. The way I always understood it, or or it could, or you could say, you could say this represents Clayton Road, or it is a representation of Clayton Road. The way I always understood was if it was a conditional phrase. The un, the unsaid word is if. So, like you have your hand here, and the unsaid word at the beginning of the sentence is if this is Clayton Road, then this would be the road that you turn on. So it's a conditional statement; it's not a representational statement. That's, I've never heard that. Where did you get that? That's the way I always, you know, worked it in my head. That it wasn't a representational statement. It was, if this is this, then this has to be this. Especially when it comes to directions. See, I'm just wondering, honestly, I'm just wondering if that understanding isn't driven by a desire 
to have is literally mean is. I'm not sure that this would kind of occur to anybody to parse it that way. Um, Now, have others of you heard this? The the if thing? No, not the if-then clause. Just that it's a conditional sentence. Um, See, I'm just wondering, though, with Jesus and the uh, parable of the sower, when he says, the ones sown on the path, these are the ones who. I think they represent the people who. I'm not sure what else you would say. I mean, you could say these are a representation of, but I'm not sure we want to go there. This bread is a representation of my body. See, we're not saying that. I don't think you've gotten where you want to go with that. Um, Now, I want you to notice this. Sometimes... The non-literal feature, sometimes called the trope, the trope, which is the non-literal feature, sometimes the trope is not in is, but it's in the noun, like this. When Jesus says, and our argument with the Reformed often gets bogged down on this, Jesus says, I am the door. I am the gate of the sheepfold. He doesn't mean I represent the door. He means I really am something like a door. So the trope is in door, not in is. I am the door. It does not mean I represent the door. It means I really am something like a door. Now, that's not the same as saying, this is my body, because you don't want to say, this is something like my body. And going along with that, I don't think that if then works, because then if Jesus is holding up the bread and saying, if this were my body, like, that wouldn't make sense. Yeah, right. I'm not sure where you want to get with that, that business of the, uh, uh, now, I want to say, let me just back off a little bit, suing on this. I think a lot of these efforts are misguided because they founder on the notion that if something is non-literal, it's not true. See? So you're, you're always worried that, you know, I've got to make is. Is has always got to mean is. Well, we think it means is in this case. Because of 1 Corinthians 10. Not because is always means is. So there's a contextual reason why this is true. Looking at the New Testament. It's it's not because there's some magic in the word is. Thus Luther's argument with Zwingli, where he was doing Latin, and he had hoc est corpus meum, this is my body, and then the thing goes that underneath the cup he wrote est, and every time Zwingli had a good argument, he'd look under est, and it means is. I mean, it's interesting. I, I just, I'm not sure that's the way to go, to be honest with you.
I just don't think that this rides on a non-negotiable meaning of the word is. And just remember this. This is the simplest way to say it. What would that sentence mean if it were stated by anybody else who is not the incarnate Son of God? And it doesn't mean that he's got blood in the cup. See, nobody would believe that. So, uh, so you have to watch out here that you don't argue kind of falsely on this just to use this as a protection for some kind of under, our understanding of the Lord's Supper. Okay, um, let's see how we're doing. We've maybe got a minute or so yet. Um, if you go to page 174, page 174, has this example from Luke chapter 14. And this is the loose usage. Whenever you have breakfast or lunch or dinner, never call your friends. And then at the end of the passage here, a dochein. Whenever you have a banquet, call the poor, the crippled, the lame. Now, I've never really seen anybody discuss this. This is a really interesting case. Whenever you have a banquet, call the poor, the crippled, the lame. Ho, ho, but I don't have to call them for the other meals. If I have a lesser meal, I can leave them out. I don't think you're thinking that way. Now, there's a whole bunch of ways in which you can think about this. This is a really tough case. I mean, this one and all the other ones. Whatever it is. What I'm trying to point out to you, it's got to be more than literal. It could be literal plus, or it could just be some synecdoche, but it can't just be literal in the sense, invite these people for a banquet. But if you're having a regular meal, I want you to, it's okay to ignore them or to slight them as you normally would anyhow. You can't mean that. Now, this could be like that marismus we talked about in addendum 5a with Hebrew poetry, where you kind of take some of the things from this, and you have some of the things from this, and they're kind of intending on covering the whole whole waterfront. (coughs) But this is an example here. What makes this tough is dochei, clearly does mean banquet in a literal sense, but you get the impression that it means more than that as well. 